The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. 2020 is off to a great start for the CBF podcast with guests like Father Thomas Reese, Soong Cheng Ra, and Casey Van Norman. We also have a lot of exciting episodes ahead, including interviews with Eugene Cho, Sarah Bessie, and our week in D.C. at Advocacy in Action. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. This CBF podcast conversation is brought to you by Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Baptist Seminary of Kentucky is fully online starting this fall with short-term workshops, focused certificates, and a full MDiv program. Learn more at bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. Well, our guest for this exclusive Facebook Live CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Sonia Heath. Dr. Heath is a professor of medicine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. She's a board certified in eternal medicine and infectious disease. Dr. Heath, thank you for joining the conversation. Hi. Now, uh, reading through your resume, uh, you're an expert in areas that are way above my pay grade. So tell our audience a little bit more about your specialties and your expertise. So I'm a professor at uh, the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and uh, I spend time seeing patients uh, in the hospital or in clinics that have HIV, as well as uh, other general infectious diseases. I also focus a lot of my attention on um, uh, HIV research and vaccine development, uh, and now working a lot in the space of COVID on clinical trials uh, related to 
uh, treatment and hopefully vaccines for COVID. As you think about going into that practice, you're in medical school, you had to make a, a choice at some point to, to make that, that direction. What was it that inspired you to go into the direction of infectious disease? Well, I actually did research before I was involved in medical school and studied um, the immune response to HIV. And that was one of the things that uh, really drove my decision to go into infectious diseases. Uh, and then when I went to medical school and uh, did my residency program in Alabama, I had a lot of great mentors in infectious diseases. So it was uh, wonderful to follow in their footsteps. Hmm. Now, I guess when you go into the infectious disease business, uh, you only hope to be studying contained cases versus a, a worldwide pandemic. So uh, when did the reports of COVID-19 virus begin to register with you that this is something different? Well, I think, um, you know, even the cases in December and early January were concerning given how widespread the disease was, uh, you know, in in China. Um, you know, just the infectiousness of it, how many people were becoming infected and how it was overwhelming hospitals. Uh, and then to see, you know, we are a global um, market and, uh, you know, we have people traveling around the world. And so it wasn't surprising that it very quickly started to spread to other, um, you know, countries, you know, other places in Europe. And, and you know, it was only a matter of time before um, before it was in the United States. Um, and so I, I think, um, you know, really late December, early January, when we started to see the numbers in China, um, you know, we knew it was going to be a challenge that we were we were going to eventually face. Um, and, and really depending on how well we put in place our public health measures was going to really determine how widespread it was going to be in the United States. Hmm. Now, over the weekend, NPR dropped a report that found that less and less people or fewer and fewer people are, are following the social distancing guidelines uh, tracked by uh, cell phone data usage. And of course, some states like Georgia have, have reopened in their um, you know, personally designed phases, if you will. And many health experts have, have lauded this decision uh, by the Georgia governor stating that there are, are, it's not clear um, on how that we're out of this and, and there could be a second wave of cases that come as a result of this. And kind of caught in between uh, this mounting pressure um, is congregations and pastoral leaders um, who feel pressure to, to reopen, to get back to, to worship in the daily rhythm of the church. From a, from a public health perspective, um, what needs to happen in order for us to realistically consider resuming uh, activities back in person? Who, who should churches be listening to uh, about the right time to reopen? So I think it's really important to consider, um, you know, the way we went down into this is going to be similar to the way we come out of it. And by that, I mean, when and and I'll just say that a lot of my comments are related to the area that I live in. I'm in Birmingham, Alabama, Jefferson County. We have, you know, very strong public health in Jefferson County, um, and then we also have the guidance of our state um, health officials. And so, when we started having um, the first case in Alabama, um, there was a restriction of groups of people more than 250. 
And then that quickly went down from 250 down to 100, down to 50, down to 25, down to 10, down to zero. And so I think, you know, when we think about how we're going to come out from this, we should think about um, that those same numbers um, that we're not going, I like to use the analogy of a dimmer switch. We're not going to just all of a sudden turn on the switch and go from no church to having a congregation of 250 or a thousand people in the same room. That, that is not what we anticipate happening. Um, but um, how can we safely uh, congregate in small groups? And so right now in Birmingham, Alabama, and in, in, in our state, we're allowed to congregate congregate in groups of 10 or fewer. And I think that, you know, as you alluded to, we need to monitor very closely what is happening with the cases of, of COVID-19 and um, how our hospitals can actually handle those caseloads. Because remember, when we decided that we needed to shelter in place or we needed to stay at home, that was partly because we do not want our hospitals to be overwhelmed with cases. So if your family or friends are sick, we want to be able to have room for them in our hospitals. Um, we don't want to have a situation like New York. We don't want to have a situation where there are not enough hospital beds and we need to have a ship off, um, you know, off the coast acting as an additional hospital site, or we need to take a conference center and create hospital beds in those places. So when we start to open up, we are not surprised that there are more cases. That's expected. But we really need to understand is how can we prevent the number of cases that are occurring to allow our hospitals to still function at a capacity that if you or your loved one needs to be hospitalized, that we can take care of them. So that's sort of general comments um, regarding that. Regarding social distancing, um, we are not doing a good job of social distancing. Um, I'll just speak to what I can see on the news and what I see in my own hometown. We need to consider universal masking and six foot distancing in everything that we do moving forward until we have good treatments and until we have you know, a vaccine. And so when we think about our churches or anything else that we're doing where we're bringing people together, we need to consider how we can be safe considering universal masking and six foot distancing. And so I'll just start by saying, we're not really in a place where we can have all of our church members come together. But if you think about your own church family and let's say your community, your, your state legislation or your county um, guidance has allowed 10 people to come together, how can you in your congregation bring 10 people together in a space where they can sit six feet apart from each other and wear masks and try to see if they can be in community with one another without increasing risk to one another? Should churches be cautious and being optimistic at this time about opening anytime soon? I think they should be very cautious about opening anytime soon for very large congregations. I think churches can consider all of the different things that they offer to the community. One of those things I just call big church. It's when everybody comes together. 
And I don't think that our large congregations of people is really anywhere close on the horizon right now. I think we need to think about what can we do in ministry to our populations um, in, in small groups that is safe, or what can do we do in ministry to our community, whether it be, um, you know, my church does community ministries for homeless people or people that are hungry. You know, our church does a lot for our community. And how can we begin to institute those types of activities in a safe way that considers social distancing? Um, but not how can we figure having 200 people gather in a small space where we're going to be sitting next to each other in pews? Now, if we wanted to think about that, um, you could say, okay, well, my church has a small uh chapel area where maybe only four or five people can be six feet apart from each other. And that's not really a big, you know, um, joyful congregation of people. So that's probably not going to work anytime soon at all. If we consider our larger church, you might be able to say, okay, well, every third pew could be used and two pews are marked off with tape can't sit on those pews, and we toggle back and forth, left side of pew one, nobody in pew two and three, right side of pew four, nobody in the next two pews. And then if you did that, I really think you need to consider the guidance to your congregation that if we invite people back into the church, everybody won't fit. So we need to think about who gets to come to church. So maybe some people get to come to church that fill out an RSVP form and you get told, okay, you made you made the the RSVP list this week, but the next four Sundays you can't come. You have to stay on Facebook or YouTube or what have you. But the other thing that I think is really important is that I think there's a lot of people in our churches that are really compliant. And I worry most about our elderly and at most risk people. So as our congregation is looking to our church leaders, we need to remember that our, our congregation is going to look to us to lead. And if we say the doors of the church are open, they are going to feel like they need to come. And we need to give them permission to follow what is most beneficial to keep them healthy. So I think we have to, you know, our church congregations are getting a lot of information from a lot of different sources, and they don't really know what to believe. Um, they hear lots of different things from different news media. So how can you give them messaging that is rational and sound and is going to allow them to um, really um, protect those of us that are at most risk? So if you have somebody who is older than 65 or even 55, um, maybe they should just continue to do church at home. If you have people who are in those high-risk categories, high blood pressure, obesity, heart disease, lung disease, um, on immunosuppressive therapy, getting treatment for cancer, maybe all of those people shouldn't come to live church right now um, in the church because by, by telling them that the church doors are open, and by them being a very compliant um, congregation who wants to be sitting in that pew listening to you, 
um, you know, we need to give them a permission slip that says, you know, we love you and we want to be able to see you two years from now. And we don't want you to put yourself at risk by coming to the physical church because church is not the physical church. It is not the church building. Church is our community and what we share with each other. And so I think as we open the doors to the physical church, we need to give permission for certain people not to come, almost encouraging them not to come because we love them and and we want them to continue to stay safe at home and that we will continue to have a church service that is readily available for them to continue to worship with us. Something you said earlier that you, you got to remember you're Methodist and we're Baptist. You you can hardly find four or five Baptists that want to be in a room together. So we might actually be able to have a small group successfully in, in most of our our congregations. You alluded to something and, and, and something you just said that, you know, the Christian tradition hasn't always been trusting of science. Um, you know, sometimes we warm up to it after a while. Um, but you're you're a person of faith and you're a person of of science. Why, why do you think it's been so difficult in this current crisis for many people to just believe the facts as they are? Hmm, that's a tough question. Um, I don't know that I fully understand that. I do think it's challenging when you hear mixed messages and you don't know what to believe. Um, you know, we need to understand what the facts are. And sometimes our leaders in various groups aren't all sharing the same facts. And that makes it confusing to people. And that's why I think as church leaders, we can dissolve down the facts that we think are most helpful for our small communities and just say, you know, these are the facts and these are the premises that we are going forward to make the guidance that we are gonna follow. And, we're, and, and we can discuss the facts, but they're not really debatable because these are the facts that are given to us from the scientist with as much information as we know right now. Um, I do think it is a hard decision. I'm very much of an evidence-based and a fact, fact-based person. I believe that God has given us all gifts my gift is is science and medicine, and I believe that I can share that with people. Other people have other gifts that they share with me. Um, and I think at this time we do need to look to, you know, the CDC, um, Dr. Fauci, and scientists who are studying, you know, this, this disease, this infection, um, and really understanding how it's spread and how we can be um, careful with our guidance of how we reemerge so that we can protect people, um, go on about our lives, but do it in a careful and cautious way so that we do not lose, you know, people unnecessarily to this illness. I don't know if that answers your question though, because I don't know if I have an answer to it. <laughs> it's a challenging one. Yeah. Well, as, as we look at communities um, reopening, more specifically, uh, congregations uh, resuming their rhythm of life together. We stand at such a fascinating uh, place where you have uh, suburban and urban communities that have been hit hardest by this crisis versus the rural communities. Uh, the cases have been a bit more sporadic. So take, for example, uh, the decision made by my friend, Michael Mills, the pastor in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, 
might be completely different territory than my friend Chris Turner, who's in Anger, North Carolina. So should we be looking at states reopening or segments of states reopening? And in turn, how does that affect local congregations? So I do think that um, every so in Alabama, we have something called Alabama Tracker. And um, in each of your different states, you probably have a um, a county and or state health department that is tracking the numbers. And it is less helpful to track cumulative numbers and more helpful to track one to two week trends. So for example, in Alabama, we have two highly populated areas in Birmingham and Mobile that have high cumulative numbers. But if you look at Birmingham specifically, our numbers have decreased for a period of time and then slightly increased, while Mobile, which is much more populate, much less populated, actually has a higher number of cases um, in, in the last one to two weeks. As far as the rural guidance, we have some rural areas that have very few cases, but we have other rural areas that have a high number of cases. So even in rural areas, you are not protected. You need to look at your local epidemic. And so I would encourage the church leaders to join with somebody either in science, epidemiology, or medicine. Again, it doesn't have to be an infectious disease specialist, but somebody who can go to those websites and look at those trends and and then give guidance based on individual counties. So we have county level data and we can look at the county level data based on the population of that area. The other thing I want you to consider is that, you know, if you live in a large populated area, you more than likely have a large hospital with lots of beds and lots of critical care beds and lots of ventilators. If you live in a rural area, you have a very small hospital with many fewer beds, sometimes no critical care, and sometimes a hospital that has actually shut down in recent um, years based on you know um, decreases in hospital coverage um, across many of our states, for example, in the southeastern part of the United States. So as we think about how to keep our population safe, we need to consider all of those elements. So if there is a, um, you know, a ministry that is in an area that doesn't have a lot of cases, um, you know, they may be closer to being able to allow more people to congregate in an area. But remember, the guidance is coming from your state and you have to follow your state guidance. So um, and and um, and you wouldn't necessarily as the church want to make a decision that you could gather 200 people in a space when your state guidance is 10 or 25. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center 
and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. Now, the the CDC has uh, developed these phase guidelines for resuming our daily rhythm of life. And when it comes to the church, these phases take on um, new meaning uh, versus, you know, some local businesses. So what are some of the essential facts that church leaders and goers need to understand about phase one, two and three? So um, maybe for the audience, could you share a little bit about each of those phases and then I can comment on them specifically? Yeah. So uh, as far as um, my read on phase one is congregations stay stay normal. You can only have about 25 percent of your occupancy at that time. Now, when you get into phase two, that becomes a little bit more interesting for congregations that have larger space because they allow for 50 percent of occupancy. And then phase three is 75 percent of occupancy. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that I think sort of on the last question that you have, you have is that what we're trying to do, and, re- and remember, nobody has all the answers, but what we're trying to do is give some guidance while following the guidance of our local region. So the CDC is trying to give guidance, recognizing that as a country, the United States is not all under one rule, set of rules each of our states has a different rule. Um, And so I think the first thing is you need to follow your state rules. If your state has said only 10 people can congregate, um, then you should follow that state rule. If your state has said there are no limitations on people congregating, I would really encourage the church leaders to think specifically about the population that they serve and those risk factors that we talked about before. So for example, um, when we talked about elderly people and we talked about the people at highest risk for complications from COVID, many of the people in our churches fit into um, into those categories. So just right out of the gate before we even get into the phases, I think we need um, we need to consider who the population we're serving is. And that may make us want to be a little bit more reserved and watch how others come out of the gate and look at how that affects the data of new cases before we throw all of our congregants into the church. And so that's why I like starting out with relatively small groups, like maybe your your women's group could come together or your men's group could come together or your youth group could come together in you know groups of 10 or maybe 20 if, if that fits within your guidance and that you begin to see how people feel with that, how many people are showing up, how many, you know, how much you and your in your spaces, your and now I'm talking about your physical spaces, you can actually fit people with that six-foot guidance. So if if in your church you have several Sunday school classrooms that have three or four couches and a handful of chairs, but you can't fit people in six feet apart, then you may find, wow, this is harder than we thought. So that phase one is really the first phase in us trying trying on how we are going to follow the six-foot guidance, how we are going to have smaller groups coming together. But when you get into phase two and phase three, 
I think that 50% and that 75%, I would be a little bit hesitant until I first thought about my space and the six foot distancing. How well can you as the pastor of your church fit that guideline in? And can you achieve 50%? Can you achieve 75%? The other thing is that many people will often ask, well, what about if we did everything outside? And that's a good question. I mean, I think it's really important that we are thinking outside of the box. Um, but I also think we have to think about our congregation. Um, if you're over the age of 50, you may already have problems with your hearing. You, you know, if you start putting everybody six feet apart, how, how big does your sort of acoustic and audiovisual um, capacity have to spread out so that people can really hear your message? So in your smaller groups, your lay leaders and some of the groups uh, that um, are in your church, begin to practice those things and say, well, you know, if we did say that we could be in this large field and and we, you know, spray painted on the grass, here's where one family could sit six feet over, another family could sit here, six feet over, there's another family sitting here. Now let's practice, you know, saying the benediction. And can everybody hear me saying this? And in our desire to come together, have we actually lost something in people hearing our message? And I don't have the answer for that, but I think it's some of the things that that we as the church leaders need to try on so that, you know, in our effort to come together, we're really considering whether we're achieving what we want to achieve. Hmm. Yeah, we had that conversation here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, about having outdoor worship the season for that has already passed. We're, we're headed into summer heat. So there, there is no way we're going to be doing outside uh, worship here on a, on a Sunday morning. And I have heard people say, well, what if people sort of come together in their cars? And I guess you could have everybody coming together on their car and, you know, tuning into 88.5 and, you know, you being, you know, up front and sharing the message. But I wonder do we gain something different by all being in our cars than we do just, you know, being on Facebook Live or YouTube or what have you? Um, because again, you know, at least here in the South, we are hugging and touching people. And even if you're in that car, somebody is going to want to get out of their car and go and wrap their arms around a friend that they haven't seen in a, in a long time. And so, um, so, so we are leading by the ways that we're trying to institute this. And, and so I'm with you, Andy. I think um, the season for outdoor church in the South is quickly gone. And I think um, most of our congregants would rather have a, a nice glass of iced tea and be in the air conditioning of their home and uh, having that chat message go on on the side of the, of the worship service or their Sunday school class and um, and then maybe continuing. I think it's really interesting how we have gotten so many people up to date on Zoom meetings and having congressional check ins and and really being able to have some of our small groups where we can see smiles on people's faces and sharing it in discussions with some of our small groups and, and really, really seeing how that sense of community can even be built in that way in ways that we maybe didn't appreciate that we could come together, you know, before all this hit. 
I think what I'm looking forward to most is the the people who've been sitting in their PJs when they've been watching worship or joining Sunday school. And I hope they carry that habit for when we come back in person and just wear whatever they want on Sunday morning, specifically, you know, PJs, if, if they feel led. Yeah, if they're so inclined. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we accept you as you come. And now, um, the church I serve, University Baptist Church in, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, um, when we resume weekly uh, services, whenever that time comes, um, we're asking that out of abundance of caution to those most susceptible to this virus, that everyone wear face masks while on campus. Um, an expert from Vanderbilt University Medical Center uh, Division of Infectious Disease stated yesterday that many Americans struggle to make uh, and to meet this mandate of wearing masks because of our individualistic drive of freedom and being told to wear masks feels like forced conformity. So walk us through why masks make all the difference and how church leaders can equip their congregation with knowledge and best practices for wearing them. Right. So um, one thing I guess I would start with is that a mask is not 100%, right? It's not that we think that if everybody wears a mask, it decreases the, um, the, the, the capacity for anybody to get infected. Um, that that it that it eliminates it. What it does is it decreases it. It doesn't eliminate it, but it does decrease it. And you can imagine, like if I have a mask here, I know some people will, you know, be able to see this. Um, if I have a mask on and I cough, if I cough without a mask, it goes very far out into you know the room. And typically, when we cough or sneeze, it can go three feet out into the room. And with COVID-19, we also worry about some degree of aerosolization. And that's why we talk about a six foot distance. If I now have a mask on and I cough into my mask, many of those particles get caught on the inside of my mask. Okay. And so instead of the three feet distance, it's now captured in my mask. And so that makes the general air that we are that we are surrounded by maybe have fewer of those respiratory particles in it and less likely that I would transmit to somebody else. So I do think that there is a role for universal masking. And I think that it basically helps me prevent spreading anything into the air that could infect you. Um, you know, the other part is that depending on the type of mask, fewer particles are inhaled through the mask. Um, but really, it's mostly preventing my my cough um, or my speaking to allow those respiratory droplets to get into the air around us. So I really do endorse people wearing masks. I do want to mention briefly what wearing a mask has to be, though, right? I have to have a mask on, and I'm not going to keep it around my face the whole time because it may be muting my voice. But for those of you who can see, um, this is the correct way to wear a mask. Okay, it's around my nose. I've, I've crunched it around my nose. It's under my chin. And if I cough or sneeze into the mask or I talk, I am basically capturing those droplets. This is not the right way to wear a mask. This is not the right way to wear a mask. <laughs> This is not the right way to drink coffee while wearing a mask. <laughs> so, for example, one of the things that we've talked about in our church is, you know, um, if we're wearing a mask, we don't need a Sunday school class where everybody's also drinking coffee. 
right? It's just not compatible. You can't have a mask on and protect yourself and sip from a coffee cup. Mm. So um, I understand that people um, have the freedom uh, to do whatever they want in this country. Um, what I would wonder, though, is is your desire to have your freedom worth you putting somebody else at risk in your congregation? And at least in my in in the way I view my religion, it's about the community that I'm in, you know, in, in community with. They're they're my family. They're my friends. Um, you know, we have a, a shared sense of purpose and love. And I wouldn't want to do anything to harm somebody else in my community. And as an infectious disease physician, I could have COVID and I could be asymptomatic. Um, Our children could have um, COVID and have a little bit of a sniffle and never really, really get sick. But they could cough and they could or they could they could just simply talk and they could um, spread COVID to other people. And by simply having them wear a mask, they are protecting a lot of other people around them. So it's not so much that we don't have freedom in this country. The question is whether your sense of freedom is greater than your desire to show love to other people in your community. And what I would hope in our church community is that our church leaders would would um, really say that that the freedom and that sense of, um, of 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 showing love to our other congregants um, errs on the side of protection of of everyone in our church community. Hmm. That that's how I feel about it. I'm sure that different churches are going to come, uh, you know, on on different sides of that. Uh, but the other thing I think congregants need to do is if you walk into your church and you find that there are a lot of people that are um, exercising their freedom greater than showing their sense of love to you, you need to protect yourself and go back to your FaceTime or, or you know, uh, Facebook or YouTube video church experience because it's not worth your life. Um, there are young people without risk factors who have died of this illness. There are people that are in the hospital for three to four weeks before they recover and have significant damage to their lungs, which may not be recoverable in their lifetime. And it's just not worth it, um, you know, to, to, to have that, um, you know, impact you if you could protect yourself from that illness. Got a question from one of our uh, audience. Uh, they asked, if you wear a mask, do you have to sit six feet apart and worship? That is a really, really good question. And the answer is yes. Um, having a mask on does not mean that, you know, you can limit the social distancing. But it does recognize that there may be times that that, you know, that six foot distancing is not able to be preserved. So the goal would be um, for you to maintain six foot distancing and wear a mask. And there may be times when you, you know, get up to leave the church where it's hard for everybody to file out and maintain six foot distance 
or there may be, you know, times when somebody gets up and uses the restroom or something like that, and they pass by your pew, and they're not able to maintain the six foot distance. So yes, we would want you to maintain six foot distances and wear a mask. Um, just like in the grocery store, um, in the grocery store, we want to try to limit the number of people in the grocery store, try to have people going in one direction on different aisles in the grocery store. But there might be times that you're getting a little bit closer to somebody while you reach for that box of cereal. And, you know, that's a time where that six foot distance decreases. Um, but yes, we want both of those things to be in place. Hmm. Great question. In Baton Rouge, I've guaranteed that people will stay six feet away from me by rocking my Alabama uh, <laughs> mask around town. So there you go. Of course, there they have go. the upper hand from from this last year. Yeah. You know, so there's that. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that we talked about in our church is also recognizing that um, we don't want to put anybody in our church at greater risk than um, than what we're asking our congregation to to potentially be in. So, for example, in our church, we don't want all of our choir to stack into the pulpit area and be shoulder to shoulder to shoulder so that we can hear the harmonious sounds of a large choir blended together. Yeah. And so our choir is really a handful of four people singing now, and they are maintaining six foot distance and they don't have a mask on. Um, but, um, you know, we want them to be, be protected as well. And so various parts of your church are going to look a little bit different so that you can keep all those people protected as much as possible. Yeah, we've had quite a lot of questions about choir. Um, you know, some of the practices that we're working on right now to put in place for when University Baptist comes back together, you know, specifically when it comes to worship, worship leaders will separate by physical proximity. They'll use separate microphones. Um, and we're deciding to hold off on choir singing for the time being. In fact, um, the American Choral Directors Association and the National Association of Teachers of Singing recently stated that it may not be safe for us to have corporate singing um, for, for maybe even a year or two. Um, so, you know, as you look at this, uh, you know, are these healthy precautions? Are there other things that we can be doing um, to protect our people, to protect our worship leaders when it comes to the actual time of worship? So I think, um, you know, regarding the year or two and the choirs, um, we need to remember that if I am very close to you, I might be able to whisper and not project my voice as much and maybe fewer of the invisible particles, droplets from my mouth would extend out. If I'm distant from you and I'm talking more loudly or in the case of our choir members, um, really projecting their voices, you know, all of that um, sort of respiratory droplets that the virus has carried through comes out, um, you know, with them, uh, you know, projecting their voices. So I think the guidance that, that, that you guys are following and that you've been given is really, really important based on the science that we know of how this disease is spread. We are doing a lot of clinical trials to try to look for the best treatments Realize that a lot of the things that you've heard about on the news have not been tested in placebo-controlled trials. So you may have heard of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. Um, that is something that, that there is a trial ongoing now. And so when we think about, 
you know, one to two years before we get answers on some of these things, that's realistic because we're doing placebo controlled trials. Um, recently, you may have heard about remdesivir. There are early signals that that might be a good um, treatment for us, um, but we need to wait until the, we get all the data from the trials before that is an answer for you know treatment for all of us. So I think regarding your question on sort of the timing of next one to two years, I think that that's very realistic and we need to be thinking long-term like that on the safest ways. So I think, you know, um, having either a very small um, choir group that can really distance or using technology like we're using and, and doing distance choir, um, you know, uh, compilations for our worship service is really important. Um, I think we're going to need to have a YouTube or Zoom, uh, not necessarily Zoom, YouTube or Facebook type of um, of uh, a church service for a good year and a half to two years. I think that that is, is the reality that we're in. I do think that we will be able to have smaller groups come together. Um, I really don't know about groups of 200 people coming together anytime in the next year. I, I don't. I don't know that we're going to have enough medicine, enough. Uh, we won't have a vaccine in the next year. Um, and even when we do get a vaccine, we won't have scaled up enough doses to vaccinate everybody as soon as it becomes readily, you know, it becomes available. And so I do think we are looking at, at um, you know, alternative ways to gather in large groups um, and, and, and continuing to protect those at greatest risk. Does that answer the question that you asked? I feel like it was another component of that question. That no, you it, it does. I think the hardest thing is that's a hard reality for a lot of people on a lot of different levels. Yeah. And I think congregationally, and I'm sure you face this in your professional life, but also your personal life, is giving people the space to grieve those facts. I mean, that's just the fact that we've been at home for as long as we've been at home and and then to think about that, potentially for another year or two, many of the practices that we're so used to are, are not going to happen. That's that's a hard reality for a, a lot of people. And I think ministerially, we need to create space for people to grieve. I think we need to create space um, and have an abundance of grace uh, for people who are trying to express uh, their frustration and disappointment um, in those facts. You know, but now is also an opportunity, you know, um, congregations can begin to think about how they can minister to their community in practical ways. You know, the church having a bunch of seamstress in the church, why not church be a distribution center for for masks, you know, a creative mask? I, I'm not going to recommend that people uh, start passing out uh, University of Alabama mask here in, in LSU country. But, you know, there's other ways that the church can come alongside to build some partnerships, to create some relationships. To do, to do the work of Christ in, in ways that we didn't expect we would be doing three or four months, months ago. I think that's a, a great point. And again, you know, in our church, we do a lot of community ministries and we, we were very saddened when we had to shut down some of those things, even just feeding people in the community or helping with IDs or helping with laundry or, or things like that. And we made a real commitment that the first things that we would open up would be 
those types of services that we that we sort of provide for those with the least in our community. And that while our, our coming together as a group of 200 people is definitely a part of the church, it's not a, the only part of the church. And um, those things in our community, the service of our community is so very important. And so whether it be food or whether it be masks or um, you know, uh, other services that, that your community provides, um, you know, very important to be creative about how we do that. And then also be creative about, about what that looks like. So in our church, it's often people who are retired, but living well, that are on the front lines, of a lot of those um, community services. And so we need to think about how do we protect them um, if they're not going to be the front line, maybe they're on, a, you know, maybe they're one step behind the front line and they're doing a lot of the preparation of meals or, you know, sack lunches or masks or, or, you know, various things. But then maybe there's a younger person who actually is the face forward, um, who maybe is a little bit uh, less at risk of having severe disease. Um, and that may be a way that we bring new people into the church in different ways of service that is very meaningful to them. Um, our youth group, for example, um, you know, has a lot more technical capacity than maybe some of our older um, congregants and them being able to educate even through FaceTime and things like that, how to, how to be on a Zoom call, how to click on the chat button, um, how to annotate something on a Zoom call. Um, you know, how to mute and unmute yourself, um, you know, all the little things that that our millennials are so good at. But, um, you know, some of our other congregants need to be educated on. So um, I do think there's so much that the church does that is outside of sitting in a pew on Sunday. And um, those types of activities are going to be the most robust this year um, and so important. Uh, that we continue that we continue to do those, but I I agree with you. There is a grief process of not being able to be in a sense of community um, in the ways that we're used to, um, and um, and and you know really trying to talk to different people who are experiencing this in different ways and understanding their sense of loss and understanding how we might be able to address those. Um, large congregation services are, um, uh, you know, things that we can do through these other modalities, but how do we stay connected to smaller groups of people when um, on a Zoom call, the extroverts get all the attention and the introverts are muted? Um, how, do we, how do we make those groups as meaningful as possible? And how small of a group do you have to have to have meaningful connection for everybody. Those are going to be, you know, really key questions that we have to answer in the coming weeks and months so that we really um, are able to serve everybody in our, in our church community. Hmm. As I mentioned before, you're a person of faith who also is a medical science expert. You've given us the medical facts here, but how are you coming terms to terms with this theologically? Well, I think, um, you know, one of the things I, I kind of come back to is that, you know, 
God is love. And at a time like this, we all need to bring together our strengths and and think about how we can show our love to everyone. Um, how do we come from that place of love to um, really um, rise to, you know, to this to this challenge? Um, this is not the first pandemic. Um, this is not the first time that infection has been a peril on society. Uh, this is not even the first time that the church has had to consider things like not doing communion in a large group of people. Um, and, um, you know, I've seen our church uh, really um, involve youth in a great way. Um, you know, having them, uh, you know, do readings or, uh, you know, uh, singing, uh, you know, groups of, of youth uh, bringing together, you know, a, 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 uh, a song in, in the way that they are probably better doing than we are in, in kind of syncing their voices together, um, you know, playing their instruments. And I think to myself at a time when, at least in the Methodist religion, our youth, our young youth are very engaged, but we have a drop off significantly in the way people um, stay in church. And I think about how this may actually be a way for us to reach those populations and engage them in a, in a way that we've really been at risk of keeping them for, for a while. Um, and, and that this may create new opportunities for our church to grow in different ways. I also think about the people that I've seen in my own church congregation that have moved to other parts of the country and had to join different churches when really their heart is still in Birmingham with Highlands United Methodist Church and seeing them get on our church calls and connect with people is so meaningful. Um, so I think that we all have gifts and we need to look at what those gifts are that our church, that are, you know, that God has given us and how we can use them in meaningful ways and really talk individually with people in the congregation about lifting up, uh, you know, not only their needs, but also their gifts um, and really engaging with people who maybe not have not been church leaders or maybe not involved in the church as much um, and, and bringing them back into the fold uh, uh, of the church and, and, and looking at this as an opportunity um, I, I think our church is doing a great, a great um, job of that. I've been very, very busy in my own medicine world, um, but I've tried to serve our church in town halls, asking, you know, um, having people ask questions and giving them, not always giving them answers, but hopefully thoughtful ways of thinking critically about things. Um, and and I've been amazed at how. Um, how helpful that's been to them um, and and has really brought me in in close connection with a lot of people in our church. And so I'm really happy that I can share that gift, but I've also gotten a lot back from that um, uh, from people. So I really hope that this time um, where, you know, maybe our pews are not filled with people in the same ways that we might spread our, our, our reach 
in new ways and actually capture new people in our church in meaningful ways that maybe we haven't been really good at in the last in the last few years. We want to encourage our listeners and those watching this interview to visit cbf.net backslash resuming for helpful resources for congregations, as well as pertinent links to sites such as the CDC's guidelines for reopening churches. Just a reminder to visit CBF podcast support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We want to give a special thanks to our episode sponsor, BSK, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. You can find out more information at bsk.edu. We also want to thank our annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health and Fuller Seminary. Uh, Dr. Heath, uh, thank you uh, for taking the time out of your busy schedule um, and your very important work to speak with us. And thank you for bringing wisdom and level-headedness to this very uncertain crisis we're facing. You're certainly welcome. And I, I, I would just say to everybody who's making really hard decisions, um, you guys are such leaders in the community at a time when you know, businesses and, um, you know, uh, communities are trying to figure out the best way to navigate this. And we will make mistakes uh, and we'll reflect on those and we'll stand up and we'll try again. But the church is, has always been um, a place where people trust uh, each other. And so your leadership is so important as a place of, of trust uh, at a time like this. So I, I appreciate the opportunity and, um, and, and, you know, look forward to all of you uh, and navigating this the best that you can, the safest way possible and continuing to serve your, your um, congregants. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.